Well, new season. Second season, this is Matins. I'm Father Timothy Matkin. Thank you for joining us. Um, it's uh, September 7th, 2023. We begin with a little take five break to talk about some stuff. And remember, it takes about seven minutes to play take five, which I think says a lot. A little bit of uh, advice for living, living well. Before we get started, just a reminder that uh, you can subscribe. I encourage you to subscribe on uh, my YouTube channel, if you might be seeing this there, or on uh, Apple or Spotify. And um, give us a like on Facebook, bless that like button, and uh, share it on uh, your social media, help us get the word around. Um, we're going to talk um, a little bit about uh, a new series that I'll do, so that... Um, I don't know if it'll take up the whole season or, or what. We'll see how it goes when it goes along. But last, last season, I started to think about different uh, issues in the church, and I've been asked to address uh, various church topics over the years, and they all seem to kind of fit into the same general category of, uh, you know, how are we supposed to do things or uh, how to be an Anglo-Catholic or something like that. So I thought, well, maybe that would be a good series, how to be an Anglo-Catholic. Uh, because so much about our faith and the practice of our faith, the living of our faith, um, is something that happens kind of by uh, osmosis. You know, you can, you can put it in a book, but um, you really pick it up by being around others and just soaking it in, absorbing it. So here's a chance for us to kind of talk and uh, to share some of these traditions and insights about how to live out our faith. So that's what we want to get into. So we'll of course, to, to begin a series on how to be an Anglo-Catholic, you have to start with, what in the world is that? <laughs> what is an Anglo-Catholic? And uh, that may or may not be a term that's familiar to you, but we will become very familiar with it by the time we're all done. So we'll begin with that, and before we get into it, of course, let's have a little prayer. Uh, so we'll turn to the prayer book and the collect for uh, Trinity Sunday. I think that'd be the most fitting collect to match up uh, introducing this theme, let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who hast given unto us thy servant's grace by the confession of a true faith, to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of the divine majesty to worship the unity, we beseech thee that thou wouldst keep us steadfast in this faith and evermore defend us from all adversities, who livest and reignest ever one God, world without end. Amen. And uh, speaking of the Catholic faith, if you uh, look in the back of the book with the uh, Athanasian Creed, uh, a very relevant document, one of the three creeds that we use in our liturgy in the church in the West, it begins with a very relevant statement to our topic, Whoso whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith everyone, sorry, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And then it also goes on later in the kind of the second section to talk about it's also important that we rightly believe and understand the incarnation of Jesus. So we'll talk a little bit about this question. What is Anglo-Catholicism? What is an Anglo-Catholic? What does that term mean? Um, back where I used to live before I moved to Dallas and Comanche, um, most of the Catholics out there were Hispanic. So if I said to somebody, I'm an Anglo-Catholic, they would just think I'm probably saying I'm a gringo Catholic or something. But that's not what we mean. We mean Anglican. And uh, some people prefer to use that phrase, Anglican Catholic, the more full expression. Um, but certainly what became more dominant out of England was uh, kind of the, the hyphenated, shortened version, Anglo-Catholic. Um, and we will turn to some resources to get some insights onto that. The first I would go to is uh, this wonderful little book, this gem called The Catholic Religion. 
uh, which was written by Vernon Staley. Um, it, the subtitle is A Manual of Instruction for Members of the Anglican Communion. Uh, it was revised by Brian Goodchild. Uh, it has a foreword by the Bishop of Lichester and also a preface by uh, Canon, uh, what's his name? Canon Carter of Christ Church, Oxford. And uh, if I can just read this first paragraph of the uh, preface to the first edition, I think it lays it out very well. It says, the Church of England has been the witness for God in this land, of course he's writing from England, for about 15 centuries, through all changes, all crises of trial and suffering, and in its main essential principles is the same now as it has been from the beginning, when Augustine and Aidan, and other saintly missionaries brought Christianity to our Saxon forefathers, and Alfred the Great defended it against the heathen Danes, till they too were received into the bosom of the church. The church has passed through great varieties of outward circumstance, equally, equally with the English nation itself. For many centuries it was subject to the papal see. Then for a time the state ruled it, and when the state assumed its most absolute form, when the Puritans attained power, the church was altogether suppressed and its services proscribed or forbidden. It was re-established at the Restoration, but soon after drained of its best blood through the secession of the non-jurors. Then ensued a long period of spiritual decline. At last there came a revival through the evangelical movement and of late years a still greater quickening through the Oxford movement which has stirred the whole body of the church with new life and power. Yet during all these eventful changes, the church never lost the grace of the apostolic ministry, nor of the sacraments, nor of the Catholic creeds, nor even a real measure of its old constitutional government. He mentions there the Oxford movement or the Oxford uh, revival. So the, there's th kind of three floating names that overlap, the Tractarian movement. So different um, clergy around Oxford wrote different tracts, trying to uh, reintroduce and refamiliarize their countrymen with the um, ancient teachings of the church. Uh, so each one, we'll call it a tract, but it wasn't like a threefold brochure. I mean, it was like, you know, big voluminous uh, writing, more like um, professional journals, uh, the tracts for the times. And uh, so because of the tracts that they wrote, uh, it was called the Tractarian Movement because that kind of spurned interest and revival in um, the ancient creeds of the church. And then the other movement, of course, was, or the, the other name would be the Oxford Movement because that's where that revival originated from. And then also, uh, more generically, it's referred to as simply the Catholic Revival, a revival of interest and ownership and... Uh, um, allegiance to the Catholic faith as taught throughout English history. For me, one of the things that I think about when I think about um, well, my own personal history, growing up Baptist and then coming in to uh, uh, embrace the Catholic faith in its fullness in college, um, I was confirmed there at St. Albans Episcopal Church in uh, Waco. Uh, my for, well, the spring of my first year in college. Uh, it always makes me turn back to this uh, wonderful passage in uh, Acts chapter uh, 19, I believe, or no, chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 24. There was a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. And uh, so this really spoke to me at the time, growing up Baptist, very fervent for the faith, um, thinking I know everything, and then here I become familiar with uh, people like the Tractarians and people introducing me to the heritage of the fullness of the faith. 
and uh, they expounded the way of God more clearly because I knew all these things concerning Jesus, but I didn't know about the sacraments. I only knew, as, as it were, the baptism of John. Uh, so they instructed and expound, expounded the way of God more accurately, more fully. By the way, what does uh, Catholic mean? We should, we should say that there is, there is one true religion, and that religion is Christianity. And there is one true uh, or genuine um, form of Christianity, and that is Catholic Christianity or Catholicism. And within Catholicism, there are many ways of living out the faith, depending on the local culture and heritage and tradition and, and so on. Uh, but all of them are bound to Catholic teaching. What does the word Catholic mean? Um, in, for example, the prayer for the whole state of Christ Church, um, what we call the prayers of the people in the liturgy of the Eucharist, um, it's referred to as the church universal. And universal has been the way that it's usually been translated. But the original Greek word speaks a little bit more than just that. Because when we hear universal, we tend to think of kind of lowest common denominator, the thing that you can find everywhere. And, uh, you know, the things that are peculiar to different places you kind of leave out. And so the universal has a tendency in our minds to kind of uh, end up being a watered-down version of something. Whereas this is a little bit different. It's more expansive and inclusive than that. So kataholon means according to the whole. And so when we talk about the Catholic faith, we're talking about the faith according to the whole. In fact, as a very kind of ironic thing, I noted that the, uh, the motto of the Southern Baptist Convention was the whole word for the whole world. And I thought... What a great definition of the Catholic faith. The whole word, all of divine revelation for everyone. And that's what the Catholic faith is about. That faith which was decided upon as being not sectarian, not heretical, not this peculiar doctrine taught over here by the Gnostics and the peculiar doctrine taught over here by the, the Marcionites and the Montanists and not any of that, but the faith believed by the whole church in every time, in every place, in every culture. The faith that stood the test of time. The faith that stood the test of integration into various uh, intellectual mindsets and cultures. When it made the leap from Hebrew to Greek and from Greek to Latin and so forth, it's the faith that stayed intact. So that is the Catholic faith. And what is it to be an Anglo-Catholic, a uniquely Anglican Catholic? Well, we'll take a look at that. I wanted to call to your attention, and I'm going to put some various kind of for further reading resources uh, down in the show notes. So if you want to uh, learn more, read more, um, look down there for, the, for some further resources. One of the things that kind of became famous in my own um, learning and, and discovery, um, was this kind of axiom of uh, Archbishop uh, Fisher, uh, who was in the 50s uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was um, the one who crowned Queen Elizabeth as the new queen back in 1953. He took up his office right after uh, World War II, uh, or right in the closing days of the war, and then uh, retired, I think, in 1961, something like that. He was the first Archbishop of Canterbury since 1200s or so forth to, to meet with uh, the Pope in Rome. He became kind of a globetrotting prelate, um, much like uh, John Paul II um, would become later on. And, uh, you know, after the, the war days when travel was, you know, inhibited and so forth, it was time for the church around the world to reconnect, and he was very good at doing that. So he took a trip to, uh, well, he, he basically visited all the Anglican provinces around the world. But kind of about halfway through his tenure, uh, he visited, uh, uh, well, this was 1951, and um, he visited uh, Australia and New Zealand, uh, about as far as you can go around the globe without starting to come back. And uh, on his return, he was greeted with a, a big assembly in the Westminster Hall, and... Um, 
the Prime Minister gave a little speech, and so he gave a speech in response. The Church Times uh, covered it. This is a printout of the, uh, the Church Times. So this is the issue for uh, Friday, February 2nd, 1951. And so in response to some of the things about the uh, Prime Minister saying about how, um, you know, the, the global British Empire um, is bound together not just by um, a common heritage and common, you know, legal structure, but also by a, um, a spirit that binds it together. And uh, so Archbishop Fister, Fisher kind of expanded on that idea and uh, tweaked it a little bit. And by the way, Fisher was not what we would call an Anglo-Catholic in terms of, um, you know, a party within the church. He would be more of a kind of old-school evangelical, uh, I guess you would say. He was not really prone to partisanship, as we might say. In fact, we should add that when we talk about an Anglo-Catholic, that has been uh, a partisan label. You have different sort of parties in the church, and we'll talk about that in a minute here. Um, but what I'm talking about is more genuinely and generically um, an Anglican who understands the faith in its fullness and wants to live it out in its fullness. There was this great uh, phrase in the old days that you would see in like church advertisements in, in England, and they would say, this parish has full Catholic privileges, which is to say, we do everything. You know, we offer everything. We do Mass every Sunday. We do the daily office every day. We hear confessions, and we do baptisms and confirmations and all that kind of stuff. You know, you can find the fullness of the faith here. Um, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, what it is to be an Anglo-Catholic. It is to be someone who knows our heritage and our faith and who lives it out to the fullness. And we, we live in a time when people, there's kind of a cultural amnesia um, in the church, certainly. Um, and of course, you have that hurdle when someone comes into the church from a non-churched background, and they don't know anything. They're trying to catch up on all of these things that people are familiar with, and they have to be taught everything. And, um, but in our culture at large, you have kind of a, an ignorance about uh, who we are and where we come from. So you might ask young people today, you know, tell me about Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Thomas Paine. And um, they might have heard these names, but maybe can't tell you much of anything about them. What is the War of 1812? What is the Truman Doctrine? What is the Monroe Doctrine? You know, what is, where is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Where does that come from? Maybe couldn't tell you much of anything. I remember... When I was a kid and I was watching, um, I was over at my grandparents' house in 2020, I think, was on, and, and they were doing some reports, probably Geraldo Rivera, uh, about uh, the state of education today, and um, they were interviewing some college, or not college, but high school kids, and, and they asked one, who's the president of the United States? And the kid's like, oh, I don't know, I don't pay attention to the news. I think this was like 1986 or 7. You know, Ronald Reagan had been president for half of this kid's life. And his response was, well, I don't pay attention to the news. We have a lot of people in that situation today when it comes to their faith. They don't know a whole lot. And it's our role as Anglo-Catholics to pass on our heritage, our traditions, um, which means we have to know them in the first place and we have to live them out. So back to Dr. Fisher. So Church Times from 1951, his little speech that he gives uh, when he returns from his trip for the other side of the world. The Anglican Communion, said Dr. Fisher in the course of his speech in reply, in reply to the Prime Minister, with its fellowship of churches, has a special responsibility at this time in the world. We have no doctrine of our own. We only possess the Catholic doctrine of the Catholic Church, enshrined in the Catholic creeds, and those creeds we hold without addition or diminution. We stand firm on that rock. We know how to bring to bear on our Christian devotion and creed all the resources of charity and reason and human understanding submitted to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we have a freedom and embrace a faith 
which in my belief represents the Christian faith in a purer form than can be found in any other church in Christendom. That is not a boast. It is a reminder to us of the immense treasure that is committed to our charge, the immense responsibility on us in these days to maintain unshaken those common traditions that we have inherited from those who have gone before us. And to that we say, Amen. And that's what it means to be an Anglo-Catholic. Now we mentioned before the idea of sort of parties in the church. So I wanted to spend just a couple minutes um, familiarizing you with some of these terms. You'll hear them if you study church history. And to be a, a Catholic is to be deep and familiar with church history. Uh, so this is a little thing that I wrote up for one of our newsletters years ago, um, kind of outlining different parties and their, you know, what's the distinction between them. So first of all, high church. This, this term comes into being around the 1600s. Uh, so this view is represented among the Caroline divines, that is, theologians of the era of Charles, as uh, King Charles who saw the Church of England as a divine institution. So that's a high church view. A low church view would see it more as a human institution or as having uh, more man-made elements. William Laud, Thomas Ken, and Lancelot Andrews would be uh, examples or representatives of this high church uh, label. They combated the Puritan reformers and the reformed views of the church in general, arguing that episcopacy and sacraments were instituted by God. They also were adamant about the divine, the divine right of kings, and so many of them became non-jurors uh, when William and Mary came in. And then you have the Tractarians. Uh, so this term, of course, comes in with the beginning of the Tractarian movement in the mid-1800s. So they are high churchmen to start out with, but their high view of the church uh, leads to the Oxford or the Tractarian movement. They were mainly concerned with theology rather than with ritual. And so their services uh, in those days would be fairly indistinguishable from the high churchmen of the day. They parted with the old high churchmen about the divine right of kings. Their emphases were on the church fathers, the continuity of pre- and post-Reformation Church of England, it was essentially a patristic renewal, a renewal in the interest and study of the Church Fathers, best characterized by John Keeble. And they were not uh, as often accused Romanizers, although, of course, John Henry, John Henry Newman did uh, become a Roman Catholic. And then you have uh, the Ritualist. So these come, it's kind of the next, gener maybe generation is not the right word, but sort of the next wave uh, from that movement. So this is the late 1800s. So the ritualist took the views of the Tractarians to their logical conclusion regarding worship, whereas the Tractarians simply emphasized following the prayer book, much like the Methodists. You ask, what is the method of the Methodists? The method is follow the prayer book. Use that as your pattern for Christian living. Uh, so whereas the Tractarians emphasized just Let's follow the prayer book. It was the ritualists who introduced ceremonial and ritual advancements like candles on the altar, crosses and crucifixes, ceremonial gestures, signs of the cross, incense, surplices, and Eucharistic vestments that would show forth the doctrinal continuity with the pre-Reformation and contemporary foreign Catholic practices. Edward Pusey is a good example of that kind of transition from Tractarianism toward ritualism. Uh, it's almost like he was kind of the, the, the father uh, of ritualism in the sense that he, he didn't become all that ritualistic himself, but he's he, like the churches he planted and the, and the, uh, the sisterhood that he started and, and those kinds of things. You see that flowering under there. Also, we should point out that... Uh, the, you know, the Tractarians said, live by the prayer book. And in a sense, um, the ritualists took that check to the bank and cashed it because they noticed, well, you have here what's called the uh, ornaments rubric, which basically says that all of the 
the stuff, like the crosses and candles and, uh, and the vestments and all that kind of stuff, uh, should continue the same as it was when the prayer book first came in. Uh, so basically, the, the, the beginning of the 1549, when everything was exactly like pre-Reformation times, as it was, you know, on that date. It should, the chancels and everything should remain as they were uh, at that time. And then you have sort of the next term that comes along, which is Anglo-Catholic, Anglo-Catholicism. Uh, I think Anglican-Catholic is really more of a later thing, and perhaps even more of an American thing. I'm not quite sure. But Anglo-Catholic comes in really the early 1900s and kind of represents the full flowering of both the Tractarian thought and the ritualist transformation. In addition to Catholic ceremonial and ritual, devotional practices like uh, the Rosary, Novenas, Benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, and Catholic societies and guilds, as well as the full round of Catholic services, like uh, the High Mass, uh, the Daily Mass, the Daily Office, uh, regular private confession. All of these were not just things that existed, but that were kind of insisted upon as normative. Uh, some of them were uh, more what we might call prayer book Catholics, uh, while most uh, in those days uh, supplemented the prayer book with minor propers and offertory prayers, and sometimes even the Eucharistic canon of the Roman Missal, usually in English, in English but not always. And there was something um, in those days called the transitional rite, uh, so that it was kind of expected that there would be prayer book revision. In fact, in 1928, there was a proposed book, and it ended up not uh, becoming official uh, because it wasn't adopted by Parliament. It was adopted by the Church. So it was authorized for use as a kind of alternative service book, uh, but it didn't become the official new prayer book. But, the, for example, the, the English prayer book of 1662 in a lot of places is kind of very bare bones. And so they thought, well, we need to, this is the, this is the direction that liturgical revision will be moving in. Because basically from the second prayer book on, every prayer book kind of moved in a more Catholic tradition, recovering some of the things that had been uh, trimmed out. And so they put back in things like minor propers and um, offertory prayers. And, and uh, in the transitional rite, as they referred to it, they would basically put the Roman canon prayers uh, bracketed around the Eucharistic prayer from the prayer book. So the consecration would be from the Eucharistic prayer, but that would be preceded by everything that came before that in the Roman canon, and then followed by everything that came after that in the Roman canon, and so on. Uh, so their goal was really to be a witness to the rest of the Church of England of the Church's true nature and of her full potential. So this view was best represented by the Church Union, uh, which was a, an organization that, that did a lot of uh, printing of materials and, and um, organizing the people. Um, Lord Halifax, um, who was very instrumental also in the ecumenical movement, and then later uh, Forward in Faith. Uh, would be kind of the Anglo-Catholic standard-bearer. And also we should say that um, Anglo-Catholics, um, I don't know if you'd say introduced or reintroduced or asserted a kind of um, um, a one-church claim. So their claim was that we are the Catholic Church in England. And... Um, so the, the, it was joked about the Italian mission to the Irish. Uh, the Roman Catholics in England would be looked upon as schismatic. Um, whereas the next group we're talking about, the Anglo-Papalists, um, held a more nuanced view that, the, that at the Reformation, the Catholic Church sort of um, split. Um, and so the established Church of England was the Catholic Church, but also those who kind of went underground and then were reestablished uh, with a Roman Catholic mission to England. Um, they were also the genuine Catholics. And I, I would say that that view tended to prevail. So there's at least one area where Anglo-Papalism came to predominate. So Anglo-Papalism, as opposed to Anglo-Catholicism, 
uh, is the early to mid-1900s where this term comes along. So these were, of course, the most advanced churchmen in terms of doctrine and practice. While the Tractarians fought for the prayer book as the Catholic standard, Anglo-Papalists often saw the prayer book as so problematic and deficient that they had little use for it. And there was also kind of a, almost like a, you know, we talk about a partisan approach, kind of a cultural tag, you know, like, well, prayer book's not good enough for me. You know, I'm, I'm better than that. So Anglo-Papalists, um, uh, rather than use that interim right or transitional right, the 1662 with the uh, Roman minor propers and the canon on either side of the Eucharistic prayer, most of them use just the Roman rite entirely and exclusively, usually with the English Missal, uh, but sometimes entirely in Latin, uh, believe it or not. Uh, so there's not a whole lot of those parishes around today. Um, St. Clement's in Philadelphia would be the only one I'm aware of that really uses uh, the English Missal exclusively. They do some things in Latin. I think they do a Vespers in Latin and then maybe a benediction from time to time in Latin. Um, and, of course, the, you know, the choir would sing Latin settings of, uh, of uh, the liturgy. But most of their stuff is in English. Doctrinally, the Anglo-Papalists saw pr papal primacy as a part of the essence of the church, uh, not, not just an optional thing, but a, but a necessary thing. And their views could be said to represent uh, the archic statements on papal infallibility. So that's really another area where the Anglo-Papalist view became uh, normative within Anglicanism in general. Most religious orders were, if not at the beginning, at least eventually, Anglo-Papalist, and secular clergy were expected to be celibate. They saw corporate reunion with the C of E, uh, with, the C of e with Rome as something to anticipate in the here and the now, and thus to bring, out, bring about more speedily and smoothly. This view was best represented by the Walsingham Shrine, uh, Father Fines Clinton, the Catholic League, and the Unity Octave, uh, later renamed the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. And then there's one more kind of partisan uh, label uh, that I would mention, and this came along much later. In, in recent decades, I'm not quite sure exactly, but probably the 1980s um, is when it came around. And I remember being in college as, as a new Anglican, and I came across something called affirming Catholicism, or affirming Anglo, or Anglican Catholicism. And I thought, wow, that's wonderful. I want to be a part of that group. And so I uh, signed up and uh, started to get the newsletter and stuff. And then I figured out that uh, Catholicism was not what is being affirmed. <laughs> Rather, it was departures from Catholicism that were being affirmed. So what is aff affirming Catholicism? Sometimes it's truncated to the term af-caf. Uh, so that represents the liberalized, non-papalist Catholic tradition within Anglicanism. Um, basically a heretical um, but ritualistic tradition. They generally use Anglican liturgies with some devotional supplements like the Rosary and Benediction. Unlike many liberal Roman Catholics, they generally accept traditional doctrinal standards on things like the Trinity and the person of Christ, although many will tend toward monophysitism. The sacraments, um, the real presence, are things that they're um, pretty solid on. However, they affirm recent developments like the ordination of women and the blessing of same-sex uh, unions and marriages and so on. They also tend to emphasize the incarnation and baptismal theology to the detriment of atonement theology. So this would be best represented by uh, Frank Griswold uh, and uh, Rowan Williams, I believe both of them were patrons of the movement in their respective countries. And then also the Society of Catholic Priests, uh, which is the Society of Un-Catholic Priests, if you ask me. Well, a lot of them are not really priests because they're women, you know. And we should also point out one a critical distinction in the use of the term Catholic, Catholicism, and so on, between Anglicans and Roman Catholics. So for Roman Catholics, when you say, I'm a Catholic, 
or are you a Catholic, or this is Catholic, that's not Catholic, so on. What do you mean? Basically, it is almost like um, a brand. So you talk about, you know, what kind of uh, uh, soft drink do you drink? Well, I drink Coke. I drink Pepsi. Who would drink Pepsi? I drink Dr. Pepper, so on. Um, We don't use it in terms like a brand. So for them, to be Catholic means you are in communion with the Pope, with the uh, See of Peter. And, um, And it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, whether you attend church ever or, you know, whether you uh, actually believe in, um, you know, the incarnation and the Trinity, you know, like, well, like we read in the, uh, in the Athanasian Creed, you know, it's what is the Catholic faith? It's that you believe in the Trinity. It's that you believe in the incarnation and so on. They don't use the term that way. They just use it more as kind of a cultural label that is like a brand name. But we use it in the sense of a Catholic is a true believer. A Catholic is one who embraces the faith once delivered to the saints. A Catholic is someone who believes the divine revelation uh, that was given to the whole church for all time. They embrace the faith that spans uh, the test of time and the test of culture and so on. Um, They're someone who lives out their faith, who actually goes to church, who receives Holy Communion, uh, who examines their conscience and confesses their sins and who prays. And, you know, that's what a Catholic is. I I notice every now and then, every now and then, um, Taylor Marshall, old colleague, um, will kind of slip and start to use the term as he did in his old Anglican days. So, for example, he'd be talking about uh, James Martin. He's like, that guy is not a Catholic. Well, in a Roman sense, of course he's a Catholic. I mean, he's Catholicer <laughs> than any of the rest of us because, you know, he has a, a person. He's not just in communion with the Pope. He has a personal relationship with the Pope. He has a, he's like an apostolic attache of uh, the Holy Family. He's like the whatever for media or something. He's got some special role with the Vatican. Um, but... Yes, he was using it, as we see, as in Anglican terms, in the proper sense, that yes, he's not a Catholic in the sense that he doesn't believe the doctrines that are part of the Catholic faith. He, re- he picks and chooses. He has the perspective of a cafeteria Catholicism, which is not Catholicism at all. It's, very, it's, it's exactly the opposite. It's, uh, in fact, the word heresy comes from the word choice, so when you talk about cafeteria Christianity, that's what heresy is. You know, you go along with the Piccadilly cafeteria or something and say, oh, well, I'll pick out uh, this one and that one. Well, give me the mac and cheese and give me the chicken fried steak. And, uh, oh, I don't, want, I, don't, I don't like those green vegetables. Um, what, what vegetable do I need? Oh, yes, give me the uh, candied apples. I like those vegetables. Um, I don't like the, any of the Pass on the kale, please. Uh, give me the little thing of the... The Jello. Uh, I like the Jello for my dessert, please. Thank you. And uh, I'll have the sweet iced tea. Um, no Catholic would drink sweet iced tea. <laughs> All right. So those are the labels. One last thing I wanted to introduce was um, there was a a little um, I guess you'd say article uh, from a priest named um, Leonard Prestige. I'm saying that right, Um, uh, from 1889 to 1955, uh, he was a fellow and chaplain of New College in Oxford. Uh, Basically, he was mainly a historian. Um, His theological research was uh, competence in patristics and also uh, ancient philosophy. He is uh, best remembered for some... um, uh, illuminating uh, places and, and uh, stories with an entertaining work called Fathers and Heretics. Uh, he gave the Brompton Lectures in 1940. He wrote a biography of Charles Gore and uh, St. Paul. Uh, he served as editor of the Church Times, and then later in life he was made a canon of St. Paul's 
um, Cathedral in London. Uh, so he published an essay in 1928 about uh, what is Anglo-Catholicism. So just to share part of that, he starts out basically from, you know, like the beginning of time, uh, retracing, you know, through the Old Testament days. Well, we won't read all of that, but uh, he has a little, little introductory paragraph. Uh, what is Anglo-Catholicism? Strictly speaking, there is no such thing. But there is a thing called Catholicism, which is a way of loving God. And there are people called Anglo-Catholics, that is, Catholics who are in communion with the church in different with the Anglican Church in different parts of the world. And as Anglo-Catholics are not in the least ashamed of saying that they believe their way of loving God to be the best possible way in all the circumstances, it is desirable to explain, at least in outline, the principles on which their belief rests. And then kind of skipping uh, all of that long Old Testament stuff. In the section called The Catholic Faith, he says, Christ did not himself complete the organization of the church in detail. He chose and trained certain apostles and sent them out after his ascension under the direction of the Holy Spirit to found churches and organize converts. These apostles found that the Spirit of God, who had been manifest in the life of Christ, now worked mightily in them, and his impulse carried the gospel of Christianity throughout the civilized world. Their gospel was distinguished by certain definitive marks. It was a gospel of revelation. They did not pretend to teach anything but what Christ had instituted and taught them, or what men inspired by God's Spirit could reasonably infer from the facts of God and Christ. It was a gospel of salvation, because God himself had come in Christ to redeem the world, and had entrusted to his followers the means of grace. When we talk about the means of grace, he's referring to the sacraments. It was a gospel of goodness, which they prefer to call love, and by the wonderful gift of God, converted men actually found themselves attaining to a standard of goodness and love never before reached, save possibly for a few exceptional individuals here and there. It was a gospel of authority, because the church was Christ's society. They called it his body. Christians did not organize themselves into churches. They were added to the church, which already existed, and conformed to the doctrines and practices they found therein. It was a social gospel, because the church was an organized, visible society, and in it all men were brothers. It was a gospel of life, because Christ lived on in the church by his Spirit. And it was a supernatural gospel, because the capacities of common people were raised to a height above their ordinary natural level, and the values of common things were changed to make them instruments of divine power. So things like water, bread, and wine were used by God sacramentally. So this gospel was preached and took root and came to be known as the Catholic faith. From generation to generation, it was handed down under the special care and supervision of the Catholic bishops. Sometimes, in the course of history, new light came to be shed upon the leading of the divine spirit upon old problems. Sometimes new problems arose and were solved by the application of old principles. Sometimes the change of circumstances and conditions made it necessary to adapt ancient practices to fit modern needs. Sometimes mistakes were made or misunderstandings crept in, and then some aspects of the faith had to be taught out again and reinforced with a right emphasis and proportion in view of the whole truth as it had been once for all revealed by or in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Usually the church acted and spoke on these occasions by councils of bishops. She believed that some of the councils were aided and inspired in a special degree by the Holy Spirit, and the decisions of those councils were accepted as true by the whole body of the church. And though in a live church there must be growth and development, Catholics believe with good reason that the faith they, prof they profess is essentially the same in principle and practice as the faith once delivered to the saints and first preached to the world by the apostles.
And then he talks about the faith in England. There is only one Catholic church, but it has many branches. It is spread abroad from one center to another until it has come to possess local representatives all over the world. If a body of Christians in any place claims to be part of the Catholic Church, two things are necessary for them to make good on their claim. Their ancestry must be tested first. When a man lays claim to a peerage, he is required to prove that he is descended in the true line from the peer whose rights are in question. In the same way, claimants to the Catholic heritage must prove their Catholic descent in succession from the Apostles. The Church of England has no difficulty in justifying this claim for itself. It was founded first by Celtic Catholics and refounded after the Saxon invasions by Catholic missionaries from Rome. In fact, Pope Gregory the, the Great the first, um, he saw some um, uh, English people in the slave market and they were all looked very different from the Italians there. You know, they had this light blonde hair and fair skin, and he said, who are those people? They look like angels. He said, well, they're Anglicans. Well, we need to send some people to evangelize them. Go send out um, Augustine. So Augustine, uh, another Benedictine, uh, he sent over there to uh, refound the church in England. Uh, There is no doubt, whatever, that the Church of Rome was founded by the Apostles. And as the English Church is an offshoot from the Church of Rome, its apostolic ancestry is beyond all question. The second test which claimants have to pass is whether they have maintained their heritage. If they have deserted the Catholic Church and cast away any essential principle of its apostolic life and organization, they can only get it back and recover their former position from those who already possess these things. Anglo-Catholics believe that the Church of England passes this test as fully as it does the other. It has been reformed at several different times, but the course of its life has never been broken and remains now as it, as, as it has always maintained the Bible, the creeds, the sacraments, the sacred ministry, which it received from its founders in the remote past. It is here that Anglo-Catholics differ from Roman Catholics. Anglo-Catholics do not believe that the Church of Rome is the whole church, which would shut out the great churches of the East as well in the churches of the Anglican Communion. And they are persuaded that people can be good Catholics by accepting the faith because it is true, as they can by accepting it because the Pope guarantees it. They do not wish to pass judgment on other communions or any Christian body except insofar as they are called to do this in defense of their own position. Like, you know, if, um, if a Lutheran pastor wants to become an Anglican priest, you know, you have to pass judgment on, is this person really ordained or not? No, he doesn't have apostolic orders, so we have to ordain him new. And, th- and that kind of thing happens from time to time. <clears throat> but otherwise, we're not out there to say, uh, your Christianity is no good. Um, we want to, if we have the opportunity, like Priscilla and Aquila, um, expand and expound the faith more accurately, more fully, but uh, we're not out to denounce people. Uh, let me see. Uh, they simply, Anglo-Catholics, simply desire to preserve the principle that the Church of England is a genuine part of Christ's visible Catholic Church. The Church of England today contains several different religious groups, who are all more or less united in maintaining the principles of the church in practice, but are not all equally convinced of their necessity. Anglo-Catholics believe that the Catholic principles of their church must be maintained and ought to be practiced by all its members. Some other groups think there's no harm in doing so, but that the matter is not altogether vital and essential. This is the cause of the divisions among the members of the Church of England, But it should be clearly understood that Anglo-Catholics do not wish to force their beliefs on other people. They only claim the right to continue practicing their own faith within the Anglican Communion and to preach it it to such as will hear. Now, just to interrupt for a minute, he's not saying we should not evangelize, we should not preach the gospel and so on. He's talking about 
we're not trying to destroy the low church party, the evangelical party, and so on. Uh, we want to mentor them. We want to be the, the conscience of the Church of England, of the Anglican Communion, maintaining its heritage. So when you come across something that you don't understand, who do you go to to find the answer, to figure out what is this thing that is apparently a part of our heritage, but I never heard of it? You go to us. You come to the Anglo-Catholics because we know our history, we know our heritage, we know the faith, we live it out. Uh, so come learn from us. And then back to the um, final section here. Anglo-Catholics have sometimes been accused of being disloyal and lawless because they have sometimes been compelled to fight against various other influences in order to secure their right to exist. Such accusations are absurd. No one is more loyal than they are to the principles of the English Church or more anxious and eager to obey its laws. But if, as may occasionally happen in any body of people, some of those who are in authority for the time being try to alter those Catholic principles, of course we've seen a lot of that, or to enforce new regulations which are inconsistent with the Catholic faith, we've seen a lot of that, or to make life in the English church intolerable for Catholics, we've seen a lot of that, then it is only natural and right that Anglo-Catholics sh should stand in defense of their legitimate position. And then he goes on in the essay to talk about what Catholicism stands for, and he have, has different categories like revelation and holiness and, and so on. Um, I'll see if I can find a, a copy of that and put a link in there. So that is our beginning of a series of um, how to be an Anglo-Catholic. Before we get into that, we have to know, well, what in the world is an Anglo-Catholic? So I hope that perhaps solves that mystery for you. Uh, so tune in again. We should be back next, next week, uh, right about this time on Thursday. And uh, we'll see you then. God bless. <laughs>